Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with two of the editors, and we'll be talking with Robin Capadina and Abina Asari, and they will correct me on those names. They are the editors of When Will the Joy Come? Black Women in the Ivory Tower. Please correct me with your names now. My name is Robin Chapdelaine. And I am Abina Asari. Thank you. Can you tell us a little something about yourselves and how you got started on this project? Abina, would you like to go first? Sure. So I am an associate professor of history um, at Stony Brook. Um, And we had this extremely interesting experience as editors in which we were in a group where we would work on our efforts to write over a course of about 10 years or so. We were all in the field of history and we would meet about every few months or so and we would write and we would talk about our articles, our books. And in that process, um, we, we also shared a lot about our lives as, um, as folks in this field, in higher ed, as historians. And this book emerged from our discussions about our lives and our writing and our work. And I was graciously invited into the group um, a few years ago in the height of the pandemic or right before the pandemic. It kind of fails me now. And so I joined the conversations and we would sit and talk, as Abinas stated, and we realized that there was a common theme that we were all talking about. And that is with all the struggles, whether it's being productive or being mothers, um, heading for tenure or work in the moment right beyond tenure. Um, We discussed all these challenges in the height of a pandemic and in the aftermath of George Floyd's death and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And we wondered when we would feel light again, when we would feel joy again. And so this was a, a genuine question that we had as we discussed um, the issues in our lives. Now, you had a lot of women to write in this uh, book. What were some of the similarities of the women writers and some of the differences? A lot of them spoke about how they managed their family life with their academic expectations. 
They spoke about their relationships with other Black women in academia or the lack of access to relationships with Black women in academia and what that meant in terms of feeling as if academia was a space for them, um, whether or not that they felt welcome. They also talked about the real and emotional pain that they felt enduring some of the challenges as they got through graduate school, as they were publishing their first um, book or attempting to get through tenure. There was a, a lot of talk about the trauma involved in those processes and how they would construct strategies to get through that. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that among the things that we invited everybody to do was to speak from that I perspective, um, to use autoethnography as a field in which we write from our own lives and then use our lives as a framework to analyze and think more broadly. And so folks would write about their experiences and then use those to actually get to a few of these core issues about how our field um, gets to be more inclusive, right? Um, how we get to include folks who have a range of illnesses, who have kids, who have um, folks, uh, folks who are elderly in their lives um, and have to be able to caretake for folks as well. And so this became a way to talk about these core questions about if our field is one in which everybody is able to thrive, right? Um, and how exactly we can create jobs and um, fields of study and work um, that understand a full picture of everyone's life and has a place for people to be successful even while being fully engaged in the complexity of their lives. Right. And so I think that that was a core theme, this question of. Of. How to excel within your field of work and also excel in your life and have a sense of joy and wholeness as um, as we walk through both of these arenas. Now, in the introduction, you use some words to describe the challenges that Black women face in the ivory tower. Tell us about the terms double-edged sword and back of steel. I believe that the term backs of steel is referring to one of our colleagues' chapters in the book, and the title is... Um, just that, Backs of Steel, The Experience of Black Women Leaders in Contempor Contemporary Academia by Drs. Anuforo, Locke, Robinson, and Thorpe. 
Um, and I believe that they're talking about the kind of strength that you need to have to carry the burden um, that Black women often have to carry in higher ed. And that could be from having your personal expectations set higher than others that don't look like you. Um, Again, some of the responsibilities that fall outside of the academic arena, like Abena just spoke about, um, as well as taking on responsibilities within your own profession. Um, So yes, I believe that's speaking to the strength that Black women must have to endure higher ed. And then the other one, Pardon me, what was it again? Double-edged sword. Yeah, well, um, I can jump in there. Uh, that that term, it really speaks to, speaks to a reality in which um, there's oftentimes an interest in these institutions in, in the effort to actually acquire Black women as faces in their <laughs> staff or in their faculty, in their roster, right? Um, with the emphasis on, you know, DEI, there's an effort to have us in the room. But then the question becomes, once we get in that room, um, how are we expected to thrive and how are our voices and our inputs, which come from a fullness of our experiences and our histories, right? That how are those met? And so it speaks to that reality that, okay, that there is oftentimes an interest in our presence, at least in optics, but then beyond that, um, it becomes a bit more of a struggle to ensure that um, our expertise, our experiences, and our voices um, are heard. So that's what that term really um, speaks to, to that complexity. Now, you talk about a scholar, Nellie McKay, half of her life being in the shadow. Can you tell us a little about her life and how that what is an example of how Black women are in the ivory tower? Avina, would you like to speak to this one? Sure, absolutely. Um, this is based on an excellent book um, by Sh- Shauna Green Benjamin, who has done this um, amazing um, life history of Nellie Y. McKay. And in this book, she speaks to the fact that this was, you know, a groundbreaking um, scholar of English, of Black English and Black text. And in her life, she had to make choices about how much of her personal story she would share um, and how much she would um, keep in shadow in order to be successful 
And so this was an interesting um, case study of sorts in which at the end of her life, after she passed away, her peers in her field learned about a range of aspects of her personal life, of her household, of her children, of her choices that they had not been aware of, right? And so it raised this really interesting question about why she would make these choices to keep half of her life, let's say, in shadow. And so in our, um, in our intro, we use her story to kind of shine a light onto that issue which we raised. Um, how do we stand in the fullness of our lives while also being able to do our work in the world as thinkers, as um, as scholars, right? And so she made a choice in that. And in our book, we ask all of the authors to think about our choices, which choices we are able to make as we walk this line of being scholars and also being um, Black women in all that means um, at this time and at this place. Now, you divided the book into three parts. Can you tell us about part one, Catch While You Climb? What were some of the aspects that you like to share with the audience? The idea for this first section um, really was part and parcel to the other three sections. We noticed that there are three major themes that we were all talking about in terms of the challenges that we faced in academia and also the, the triumphant, you know, the triumphant moments um, in terms of our successes, what we learned, how those successes could be applied in, in real time. Um, but the first part was, in fact, this idea that when you enter into academia, whether you're a graduate student or an assistant prof professor, you realize very quickly that you need strategies to both understand the politics of your environment, but also you needed to figure out who you could rely upon for mentorship, assistance, um, help you navigate the politics. And then finally, whenever you've achieved a certain amount of seniority, you also want to be able to assist those other junior people you know, that are coming up underneath you, so to speak. And so this first part of the book really is based on that, um, really coming to terms with your reality in higher ed, how to survive it, and then how to help others who are transitioning from uh, or who would like to trans transition from a junior faculty member to a more senior faculty member 
Um, and I will just pay some credit to Carsonia Wise Whitehead. Some of the things that we write about, um, and especially myself in the first chapter, really speaks to what she has called, um, or what she has talked about previously with some of her mentors. And that is that we need each other to help build each other up and push each other towards success. Thank you. Now, what are some of the common themes of diversity, equity, inclusion uh, regarding uh, Black women in the ivory tower? Yeah, well, um, I think that there are actually a range of themes um, based on where, where each of us plug into all of these institutions, right? This was among the things that we hoped to do in this book it was to have authors who would be speaking as folks who are um, profs, who are admin, adjuncts as well, even um, folks who have different um, types of access and um, and place, really, uh, just because that's among the things which we see in this book, um, that the questions of um, what one's work life (laughs) is like often involve basic things like if you have access to a great healthcare plan or if you are an adjunct prof who does teach course by course and is paid course by course, right? And lacks healthcare um, and oftentimes um, has a much more um, uh, a low income than others who do the same work, but are plugged in at a plane which does allow them a lot more um, access, right? And so I think that that's among our key things is that um, DEI is not a one-size-fits-all effort, If our goal is to ensure that um, these spaces are actually um, inclusive, it is important to to think about how we make sure everybody has access to what they need to be successful in that work, right? And so that will involve transformation and change. And I think that that was among um, our key threads in this book, that the question of joy is often a question of what um, what can I change? <laughs> what can be changed about how I um, work within this institution? And at times that that change can be personal, but Oftentimes, it is also structural, right, about trying to advocate um, for those um, types of access that will allow more people to thrive. And so that's among our key things is that it's not a one size fits all. Um, We all have, you know, difference in terms of where we sit 
um, in these institutions, and that has to be taken into account. Absolutely. And if I could just add to double down on that, in Chapter 7, entitled Taking One for the Team by Drs. Letitia Bates and Whitney Gaskins, I'll read from um, their opening paragraph, which states, Arguably, diversity, equity, and inclusion administrative roles are quickly becoming a third space for Black women. Because of the demand for more equitable and inclusive institutions, we have witnessed a surge in DEI administrative positions, which has left Black women wrestling to reconcile our own personal values, sources of joy, and academic ambitions with institutional expectations that we will engage in this work no matter the cost. And Abena, I really think that just highlights everything that you said, and it is absolutely important that we understand the kind of balance that uh, Black women um, need to ensure for their own personal lives. Now, part two, you talk about policy and practice, institutional requirements for promotion and tenure. What did you find by talking and letting these women write in this section? Well, I think that the most apparent thing that we realized is that this idea that achieving tenure is the uh, a linear route um, that in academia all you have to do is go through steps one, two, and three, and you'll achieve success in this way um, in higher ed. But in fact, we learned that the requirements for tenure are so circuitous and uneven across the board, and it's not just by discipline. Uh, but also by, um, it's not just by discipline, but also it's the institution itself. It's the leadership. It's, it are, it's um, pardon me, those people that are holding positions of power, i.e. committees, right, that, that review tenure applications. So that is part of it for sure. Um, and then the other part of policy and practice is really trying to think about how we learn from what we've been through and how we create, set up, enforce standards for equity um, when you think about how women experience, um, again, the kind of roadblocks that exist in higher ed. when in fact, if perhaps she wasn't a woman of color, these you know certain roadmap uh, roadblocks would not exist. And so, I think it's really important to think about um, how this chapter can be used for individuals seeking to perhaps take an administrative position, one of leadership in an institution, where some of these processes can be looked at critiqued and redefined um, in the name of equity and fairness. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And just to expand just a bit on that, I mean, this is the space in which our authors talk about those specific um, uh, 
aspects of how these institutions work in terms of how do we deal with um, sexual harassment and assault, right? Um, that how we um, how do we deal with um, LGBTQ um, issues, and how are these um, how are these institutions um, able to actually create structures or not, <laughs> which can <laughs> um, which can allow folks to again thrive? And so, absolutely, this is a place in which our authors get quite specific about both what they faced in terms of what were the specific institutional policies and practices that they had to find their way through and around. And again, yes, how to use that experience of of hardship often and turn that into the soil for some um, some improvements in future in terms of how these institutions function. Yes. And the, in the alternative, just to point out what um, some of our authors wrote in chapter eight entitled Crossroads Post-Tenure, I think that one thing that was also addressed in this section that's really important are these kinds of questions that you ask when you feel as if perhaps I've done all I can to improve my situation um, in my profession or to improve the processes for other women in higher education. So some of the questions they're asking in chapter eight are, what are my values and priorities? What do I like and dislike about my current role? Do I see a future in the same or new role here? Um, how might my decision to stay or go impact my well-being and or my family? So it's also this moment where women are writing about, wait a second, I achieved this particular goal. Now, is this beneficial for my future well-being? And if not, how do I move forward? And I think this is so significant, so very significant that they're offering it up as an option. Often as academics, we think, oh, once I get tenure, I'll be set, I'll be at the same school forever, or perhaps get promoted and go somewhere else. But in fact, there are moments when you finally achieve that goal, and then you think, hmm, now that I've done that, perhaps it is time to move on to something else for the sake of my mental well-being or the, for the sake of my family or whatnot. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm so glad um, to hear you expand on that point because I think it is so crucial to how we understood joy in this text as a broad um, question. It's not only about staying in the same place and actually trying to make, um, trying to ensure that it works there. That might be the case for some, but this was a section in which folks talked about an aspect of joy being able to make a decision at times to leave, right? Either for a season or else even to find a new path. 
and being able to find to find joy in a choice, right? So I think that this was among the things in this book, which I did um, see, is that um, that the question of joy oftentimes asks us to be creative and actually to think broadly about um, all of the aspects of our identities and what time it is for um, for us and our households, right? Is this a time to stay? Is this a time to go? Is this a time to expand? Is this a time to actually pull back? And, and being able to access a freedom to know that our choices are are okay and are acceptable, right? Um, that was an aspect that we saw here as well. And in part three, you talk about the joy. Tell us more about what the authors were saying about joy in their meaning. Yes, um, part three, it was an interesting section because here was where we had authors from all around our world who were thinking about um, what joy meant in their context, right? Um, and so this is the part in which we actually invited the authors to kind of um, to offer up their visions, their roadmaps of how they found joy um, in this work. And um, and yes, uh, that this is a, um, that this is a section in which folks offer up lots of um, uh, broad and different um, views of what joy might look like. Um, in my section in this chapter, um, I talk about how. I oftentimes dreamed as a child who was from Ghana, but raised here um, um, uh, in the States and had lived a bit of a a transnational life. I had oftentimes met with um, a sense that if I went to some other country, right? If I moved back home, for example, perhaps that would be a space in which I could create, you know, a work-life structure that would actually allow me to thrive. And so I looked at um, what folks write about their lives as scholars and uh, moms in Ghana in South Africa, in Kenya, elsewhere in the world, and found the same themes, that the same sort of struggles to kind of meet all of those roles well. And so that process of actually trying to trying to learn that these issues are not just about where I am, but are more 
core structural issues in these institutions, even across our world, led me to a new understanding of what it might take for me to find joy, right? Um, that with the sense that it's not about trying to leave or find a new institution or a new country even, but that um, it, uh, it might be about an effort to, to find new strategies and new um, spaces um, where I am and in my own um, life. Right. And so just that question of how exactly do folks find joy is at the core of this third section. If I may add to that as well, um, and I, I love what you said, because it really explains fully perhaps what Dr. Annette Kapper was doing in Chapter 12 entitled Sail Fast. And um, I like to give these examples only because we have such fascinating writers in the text and they really do speak to these questions directly. Um, so, Abane, you're talking about joy as an experience that is com um, constantly in transformation and constantly being redefined. And Capert uh, writes, I define joy through an early primary school memory of being selected to represent my school at festival, the then main national salute to all things Jamaican, aiming to visualize our history and our culture, marking the day when Jamaica became independent from the British. And then she goes on to say 40 years later, uh, dot, 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 um, Hence, guided by the ancestors and my analysis of the dichotomy of the self and the other, I seek to explore two main concepts of joy. Joy begins with the self, and it is only by creating joy for others that we too may become joyful. And I give this example to show that even as she's reflecting on how to define joy for the purpose of adding and contributing to this edited series, she's telling us about the kind of journey that she's taken with this idea of joy and how it's been engendered in her body and soul and mind and how it is um, informed by colonialism and history and politics um, and personal identity. And I think that's exactly what you were talking about, Abena. Now, can you tell us the overall message you'd like the reader to leave with once they finish this book? Hmm, that is such a great question. I think just for me, I would like our, um, I'd like the folks that would pick up this book to feel seen to feel as though their journey and path is worthwhile, is worth sharing, is worth thinking about, thinking through, and is of use in our broader shared effort to make higher education a place where everybody can thrive and a place which is inclusive and thus able to meet our world's needs 
for transformation, right? So that was among the things that I thought was core about this book, this framework of the autoethnography, your story counts. And it's not just important just for you and your household. It can be important for others to hear your story and think about what that might mean and how it might um, help to unlock some doors for others as well. When I was attending the Burks Conference, a women's history conference at Santa Clara over the summer, Dr. Gray White was um, on a panel and she was talking about the memoir that she was writing. And she is the editor of Telling Histories and their individual chapters about Black women historians' experiences in higher ed. And um, as she was reading through one of the chapters that she was shaping, talking about one of the only Black children, if not the only Black children in an elementary school and what that felt like, um, a, a, a white woman paused and um, or asked her a question, asked her to pause and said, what makes your story worth telling? Like, why your story? Why are you telling it? And there was a silence in the room and Dr. White looked down and it was an interesting pause. And she looked back up and she said, why not? Why not tell my story? Why not tell your story? We all have stories to tell. And I want to second what Abena said. I think that this book, um, I hope, will show other women, women of color, um, other subordinate populations, that your struggle is worth sharing. Others will find strength in learning how you got through your struggle and that it is worthwhile. It is worthwhile to take the time to share it, whether it's formally or informally. Um, I think that all of our stories are worthwhile. Um, and I do believe that in sharing, we will find solidarity. And in solidarity, we can create joyful spaces. Absolutely. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next projects that you guys will be working on? I am working on a book right now, and it's a pedagogical book. It's called Embrace Black Joy, How um, Teaching, um, how, sorry, Embrace Black Joy, How Empathetic Teaching uh, Produces Empathy. So, it's a mandate for individuals not to be scared of Black history, not to be scared of the African diaspora experience showing up in the classroom, um, but rather the more we have students share about themselves, the more that they will define their positive experiences in the classroom around other people's experiences. And it's based off a class that I taught last year called The History of Black Joy. Um, so I look forward for that to come out in a couple of years. Sounds great. Yes, awesome. And I have, um, I have a pleasure in that I teach at among the oldest Black 
studies programs in the Northeast over at Stony Brook, um, our um, area, it began in 68. So I am trying to work on our archives there to kind of tell the story of Black studies at Stony Brook in a way which is accessible. Because as of now, um, our history as a group is shared um, orally, essentially, in the um, words of our alums and our older faculty and staff. And so we are trying to do an oral history project to actually get all of those histories um, accessible. So um, yes, that that is among the things I am involved with now. And I hope that that archive, um, it should be out in the next two years or so. Um, it's been so interesting to hear all of these stories from the past decades about the courses and the faculty and the teaching and the struggles um, involved in, in this Black studies um, group. So yes. That sounds exciting. It does. And we will be looking forward to both of those projects. And thank you again for being on the podcast. Again, we have been talking with the editors of the new book, When Will the Joy Come? Black Women in the Ivory Tower. Thank you again. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you.